All right, today we're going to get the big picture of 1 Thessalonians, so if you don't mind, just kind of theoretically kind of come with me and we'll all jump in the airplane and fly up to 10,000 feet, get the bird's eye view of this wonderful book, see what God has to say for us to today. The letter, which is what this is, 1 Thessalonians, was probably written in A.D. 51. As far as we know, Paul was in Corinth, which is a city in Greece, and this was also one of Paul's first letters that he wrote. Some even think it was his first letter. The situation for writing the letter was basically this, and it's, it's, it is helpful to understand why, what's the purpose, what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, because it'll help you to understand the book. Paul was on his second missionary journey, and here's a, a map of Paul's second missionary journey. He intended to revisit the, the churches in modern-day Turkey there that he had planted on his first journey. And he intended, after visiting those churches, to go up into northern Turkey. However, if you know what the book of Acts says, before that actually happened, God gave a very famous vision to the Apostle Paul. It's typically called the Macedonian vision. There was this call of a Macedonian man in Acts chapter 16 that basically said, come and help us. So if you don't know where Macedonia is, that's, that's kind of northern Greece area. So God was calling Paul over to Macedonia and as well as to, to Greece to spread the gospel to what we call modern-day Europe. And so when Paul answered that missionary call, history was changed forever. And if you're a believer today, you can thank God for the Apostle Paul answering that call because most of us have at least some European descent in us, don't we? If Paul hadn't gone to Europe, well, uh, somebody else may have. God would have taken the gospel there some other way, probably. But those of us who have some European descent can, can go back to Acts chapter 16 and thank God that God gave Paul this Macedonian vision. And so the gospel of Christianity went from Asia into Europe for the first time. Paul traveled first to Philippi. You can read about that in Acts. And then he traveled west on that main road. And then he eventually came to the chief city of Macedonia, which is called Thessalonica. And so if you follow the story of Paul's, Paul's first visit to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 you find that Paul wasn't there for a very long time. It specifically mentions there that he spent three Sabbaths with them, teaching them about Jesus and his person and his work. So he wasn't there a long time before he was actually run out of town. Uh, they didn't, Particularly the, the Orthodox Jews who lived there in Thessalonica didn't like what Paul was teaching about Jesus being their Messiah, and so they ran him out of town. But still, his time there may have been the most successful evangelistic tour up to that point. There were a lot of people who came to Christ and believed in Christ. However, Paul encountered serious persecution. And so they smuggled him out of town at nighttime. And so he went on to other places. You can read in Acts. So he went on to places like Berea, eventually went to Athens and Corinth. But these dear people were always on Paul's mind. He, he talks about them. He talks about his love for these people in this book. And so even though he was away, 
he still loved these people, he still prayed for them, he was concerned about them. And so when Paul finally thought it was safe, he, he sent his dear brother in Christ, Timothy, to check on the young church. So Timothy does go back. Paul mentions that here in this book. And so after a very short visit, Timothy was uh, able to eventually catch up with the Apostle Paul back in Corinth. And Timothy gave some good news. The Thessalonian church had survived the persecution and it was doing well. However, the church had its share of problems, just like all churches have their share of problems, because there are no completely perfect churches, are there? And since Paul had never finished teaching the basics of Christianity, the church's foundations were not complete. They weren't solid. And, and there were some problems that arose up in the church, and we see some of these things being addressed in this book. Several strange problems had grown up after his departure. And so Paul, we'll see Paul addressing those. But as far as Paul's personal situation, it was a bit of an awkward situation for the Apostle Paul. He had been charged with swindling. He had been called a con man. He had been called a cheat, a peddler. The product he was accused of peddling was the good news of Jesus Christ. The love he had for the Thessalonians was called an act. You didn't, you didn't, you don't really love these people. They said that he only cared about money. He only cared about money, supposedly. Well, if you know anything about Paul, naturally he was concerned about this slander that was being thrown at him. And so he takes this letter, much of this letter, to disprove the slander. He also takes part of this letter to address these problems that had arisen within the church. And so he contradicts these ideas by recalling his own ministry among them. His life, if you will, in ministry disproved the slander. And so we're going to look at the some signs of genuine ministry. What does genuine ministry look like? By the way, these are the things you should be striving for in your own life. We're going to see them in Paul's life. But these are the sort of things you should be striving for in your own life. These are the sort of things you should be praying for in your own church. So let's look at some signs of genuine ministry and and ask ourselves this question, do these signs describe our own ministries? But look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You'll see the first sign of genuine ministry is prayer. This is where Paul starts. Look at chapter 1, verse 2, because he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers. You may have heard that phrase, out of sight, out of mind. Well, that wasn't the case with Paul. Yes, these people were out of sight, but they were certainly not out of his mind and out of his heart. He loved these people. He didn't go there just for money. He didn't go there and, and put on some show of love like it was some some play that he was acting out. His love for them was genuine. He prayed for them, even though they were out of his sight. The second sign of genuine ministry is self-sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for these people. In his missionary journeys, Paul showed he was willing to sacrifice his own safety. He didn't necessarily care about his own life. So contrary to the slander he was receiving, Paul 
had shared the gospel with these people at the cost of himself. He didn't benefit by it. Instead, what did he receive from it? He received opposition. He received threats, particularly from the Jews. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Pause. You see that? It wasn't easy. It came in the midst of conflict. Paul also was willing to sacrifice his own popularity. He didn't care about his popularity. It wasn't about him. It was all about Jesus. He wanted them to know Jesus. And so look what he says in verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So what were Paul's motives? You can see Paul's heart. He's he's wearing it on his sleeve, so to speak, here. He wants to please God. That's the most important motive for him, which, by the way, is the right motive. In everything we do, it should be to bring God glory and honor. So he sacrifices himself for that. Number three, the third sign of a genuine ministry is motherly love. Motherly love. We see that described for us here in chapter 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Pause. (laughs) See, Paul was not harsh. Paul was gentle. Yes, the truth might hurt, but he did his best to, as he said, to be gentle among them like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He did not take from them. Instead, what did he do? He shared with them. He did everything he could to show these people love. And they were very dear to him, like a child is to its own mother. But it goes beyond that, because the fourth sign of a genuine ministry is fatherly integrity. He showed integrity as he worked amongst them. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Verse 10 says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice, he's kind of describing the ministry, his ministry as a good father. He set an example of blamelessness in his work. 
He was a man who, yes, people were trying to sling and throw mud at him, but there's no way it could stick because he was blameless. He was a man of integrity. Like a good father, he's urging them to live lives worthy of God. Number five, fifth sign of genuine ministry is a desire for fellowship. Desire for fellowship. Paul desired to be with them. He he wanted to come back to them. He desired their spiritual growth. And so look what he says in verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. So he desired their fellowship. He desired to be with them. And that's a good thing. Number six, another sign of genuine ministry is joy. Several times Paul says he rejoices because of them. Now we don't find our identity in people. All of us should be finding our identity in Jesus Christ. But that's okay to find some, to rejoice in one another. And he, he does that in verse, seven, or verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Are you like Paul? You joy in other people and what God is doing in other people? You should. Well, we move on to number seven. The seventh sign of genuine ministry is hope. Hope. The first six signs are fed by the hope that he has for them. Like I said, I think probably the theme of 1 Thessalonians is hope. And as we've seen, Paul has dealt with them as a father, deals with his own children. Paul's dealt with the Thessalonians according to the hope of God's calling in their lives. While he can't be there himself, he's hoping that God is bigger than the circumstances and the persecution that might be happening. And this hope has certain implications for the present. For example, look what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Hope in Christ's coming leads to something. It leads to holiness. So those of us who, who are looking forward to Christ's coming again should, should have an effect on us. That truth should have an effect on us. It should lead us to holiness in this present life. And there's seven testimonies to Paul's own ministry. And these things uphold Paul's ministry. And so when the, the, the slander came Paul's way, it just slid off. There, there was nothing for that slander to stick to. And, and these are signs that mark any valid ministry, by the way. These are the sort of things you ought to be looking for in your life, in your church, and praying for in your church. So I ask you this, do these qualities mark your ministry? 
Do they mark your work for the Lord Jesus Christ? As we come to the last two chapters, Paul teaches the Thessalonians how to live as Christians. So if you claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, not in your own good works or in anything else, then the truth of the gospel affects us. Jesus claims our life and it has an effect on us. And so Paul's going to lay out various qualities that should mark a Christian's life. See, your life is no longer your own, the Bible says. Paul said in Corinthians, you were bought with a price by Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So let's look at some signs of a Christian life that come from 1 Thessalonians. Number one, live in order to please God. Live in order to please God. See, this is the beginning point of the Christian life. Your life is not your own. So look what Paul says, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Let's just pause there for a moment. Do you know why you should not live to please other people? Do you know why you should not live to please other people? If you do, then you're not going to live a faithful life. Not to God, anyway. Because if you're all the time trying to please people, you know what's going to happen? There's always going to be people you're not going to please. So what is the most important thing? The most important thing is to be faithful to God, to please Him. So my friend, please realize that God will call you to do some things that are going to be unpopular with people. They will be. But that's okay if you're pleasing God. So ultimately, then, we have to live to please God, then, don't we? And so let me ask you, then, are you living to please God, or are you living to please people? You'll never win by trying to please people. Just never win. It won't work. So live in order to please God. Another sign of the Christian life is, Paul says, to live a sexually holy life. To live a sexually holy life. See, in Thessalonica, they they had all the same sort of problems we have today. So look what he says, chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. By the way, if you ever doubt what God's will is, this is something you should never doubt, because look what he says, verse 3, for this is the will of God. What is God's will for your life? Your sanctification. That's God's will for your life. That you be set apart from sin unto God. That's what sanctification means. You're set apart from sin unto God. And so he goes on to give an example, if you will. A specific example of what sanctification looks like in verse 3. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So my friend, pleasing God means doing God's will then, doesn't it? That's the only way you're going to please God. And God's wills, by the way, for Christians to be sanctified. How is that? Well, you avoid sexual immorality. In other words, you have to control your body. Control your body. That's pleasing to God. And so if you want to be holy, God's saying then one of those ways you can do that is by leading a moral life. Now, you may have heard people refer to sexual sin as private. Is it really private, though? Is it? Is any sin private? The Bible does not buy into this idea of private sin. Sexual sin is not private. It is social, and it has social implications. Just think about this, okay, for a moment. A man who sleeps with somebody else's wife is not only affecting him, he affects other people. His sin affects not only himself, it affects his wife, it affects his own body. And so a man who's sleeping with someone else's wife is is sinning against other people in the process. He causes the woman to sin. He sins against her husband and he sins against his own wife if he's married. What about an unmarried man, you say? Some people think it's okay if I just go around and sleep with other people. Hey, I'm not married. It doesn't matter. Well, if he sleeps with an unmarried woman, then he's sinning against the woman's future husband. He also sins against his own future wife. And so here's the reality. Immorality is taking something that doesn't belong to you. That's the problem. Ultimately, sexual sin is a sin against God. Paul refers to God's will here in verse 3. That in itself should be enough to motivate any Christian to avoid sin. If If we live to please God, then we should care deeply about these matters. So I ask, are you living a sexually holy life? Number three, a sign of a Christian life is that we live a life of brotherly love. Live a life of brotherly love. Look what Paul says, chapter 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So within the context of their own church here, Christians should love one another. God tells us this many times throughout the Scriptures. Yet Christians should also love the saints in other churches. Not just your own church, but other churches. Yes, we should love each other, but God also wants you and I to love other Christians. 
After all, we're in the same family. If you're a Christian, you get God as your father. And other Christians are your brothers and sisters. The question is, do you love other brothers and sisters? Well, one way you can do this is to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you do that? Paul, Paul certainly did. So are you living a life of love? Number four, another sign of the Christian life is live a respectable life. Live a respectable life. Look what Paul says, chapter 4, verse 11. Verse 11, he says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, please don't read these verses and think, well, hey, great. Well, you know, I, I like the sound of this quiet life. I, that, that's kind of appealing to me. Some people might read those verses and, and think it's okay. You know, it's God's will for me to just go out into the bush and be a hermit and have no contact with people and not care about anybody except myself. If that's what you're thinking, you're missing the point. Missing the point, which was stated in verse 12, by the way. And so part of the Christian's basic mission is to live a life that is commending the gospel to other people. How can you do that if you're by yourself? You can't. How do you commend the gospel to others and why? Well, not that others are going to think well of you. That's not the point. But so that God would be glorified. That was Paul's concern. That should be our concern. So I ask, are you living a respectable life? Number five, live a life awake to God. A Christian lives a life awake to God. So this is a little bit longer passage. Let's look at chapter 5, starting in verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. By the way, if you're wondering, are we going to come back to the rapture passage? Yes, we'll come back. Just wait, okay? Chapter 5, verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for Him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. You see that, I hope. We are to live a life that is awake to God. We're to be awake to God, it says. We, are, we don't live in darkness, as it said, but we live in the light. We do not live in the night. We live in the day. We're, we're different from the unbelievers, if you're a Christian. So we're not asleep, it says. Instead, we're to be awake. In other words, we have to be alert. We have to be self-controlled the question is are you 
Are you living a life that is alert to God? Awake to what God is, is wanting you to do, what God is doing. Let's move on. We, a sixth sign of the Christian life is that you're to live an encouraging life. Live an encouraging life. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Because it mentions that, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Does this sound like you? Does that passage sound like you? I hope it does. We see things like encouraging other people, building others up, living in peace, being patient with everyone, being kind. That's an encouraging life. So I have described what the Bible says here. The question is, does that describe you? If you're a Christian, this is how you are called to live. You're called to live an encouraging life, encouraging other people. Well, number seven, let's move on. You see, Christians are to live a God-centered life. To live a God-centered life. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. (laughs) It's just short, clear commands. Paul's just shooting them out like a machine gun. Boom, 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 boom. What's the point? It's all about God. Live a God-centered life. And you you might ask, well, how can I be joyful always? Is that even possible? Well, not by centering your life upon your circumstances, that's for sure. If if you're looking at your circumstances, you're going to get discouraged. Circumstances change. You might be all right one day, but next day you may not be. So how... If you center your life on God, though, you can be joyful. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are like. But you ask, how do I center my life on God? What does that even look like? Well, the text answers the question. Verse 17 says, pray continually. A life that's centered on God is, is one where you, you go about your life, whatever you're doing, you're, you're in this mode of prayer. God is never distant from you. He's always there with you. You're, you're constantly talking with Him. It doesn't matter if you're weeding in your garden. You're having a conversation with God. While you're doing your work, whatever it is, let's say you're doing some work on the computer, God's there with you and you're, you're talking with Him and He's talking to you. And if you're, I don't know, driving down the road, you're having a conversation with God. He, it's, it's, it's a two-way street there, so to speak. They're praying continually is part of a God-centered life. Second of all, we see in the text that you're giving thanks in all of your circumstances. doesn't mean you have to like all of your circumstances, but you recognize that 
God reigns supreme over all of your circumstances, and you can give Him thanks that He's in charge, He's in control. So I ask, is God always at the center of your mind? If He is, that's an example of a God-centered life. Last point, last sign, if you will, of a Christian life is we're to live a discerning life. Live a discerning life. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Again, it's like a machine gun. Paul's just throwing these commands out here. Notice the center of the paragraph in verse 21. We should be discerning people. We should be able to discern what is good and what is evil. Are you living a discerning life, though? Can you distinguish between what is good and evil? Or do you determine what is good and evil by what the media says, or what some philosopher says, or or the next uh, self-help book that comes along? So how are you doing on this wonderful checklist that Paul gives us? Not exhaustive by any means, but how are you doing? Well, the reality is, if you're honest with yourself, we all fail, don't we? we we've, we've, none of us have kept this, this checklist. There's only one who's ever kept this checklist perfectly, and of course, that is Jesus. Jesus is the only perfect one. You can't do this. And so, the only way we can even attempt to go through this life pleasing God and doing His will is because we abide in Jesus Christ. And so we all fail. But the question is, are you moving in the right direction? Are you moving? <laughs> are you moving? And so no matter where you stand, may I suggest that you use this checklist to pray for yourself, to pray for your church, pray for your family and other believers. Well, let's move on to one last thing that we need to note about this letter. Paul had great hope. And his hope wasn't a, well, I, I hope something's going to happen in my life. No, this was, this was a confident assurance. And his hope lied in God. His hope was in God. So let's talk about Paul's hope, particularly in regard to end time events. And so as you think about this, ask yourself, where is your hope? And so the hope that Paul had is also the hope of all true Christians. This great hope does two things. It did two things for Paul, and it should do at least two things for us. Number one, it should encourage us. But this hope that Paul has in future events and what God is going to do also concerned Paul. And it should concern us. So let's talk about this. Number one. Number one, we see that Christ's return encourages us. Christ's return encourages us amid the difficulties of life, the trials that you and I go through, and even the end of this life. Apparently, there were church members in Thessalonica who were unclear about the fate of their loved ones who had already died. So Paul is going to address that. So they were, they were wondering, thinking, well, Christ hasn't come yet. My mother or my father or my sibling has died What's going to happen to them? 
when Christ does come? Are, are they going to not see Christ? What's happening here? They were concerned. And so Paul had taught that Christ would return, but apparently had not addressed what was going to happen to those who had already died. Are those who have died going to miss out on Christ's return? What's going to happen to these people? It's a legitimate question. So Paul addresses that in chapter 4. Look at verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. By the way, when he says asleep, that's just a uh, politically correct way a nice way of saying they're dead. They're, they're dead. Their body's dead, but they're not really dead. They're going to awake. God's going to wake them up one day. And he goes on in verse 13. He says, You may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, this truth brings comfort. Reality brings comfort. So let me just highlight a few comforting truths that are based on this text. What is this comfort based on? It is possible to have a false comfort, is it not? So, this comfort's based on reality, on God's reality. So let's just think about this. Number one, we see in the text here that the dead will be resurrected. And they're then going to participate in the Lord's coming. In fact, the Bible clearly says that the saved Christians who are dead in Christ will rise first. So they're going to participate. They're not going to be left out. Number two, that when Christ comes, the living will then be reunited forever with their loved ones. So if you've ever had a loved one or friend in Christ die, just remember this. One day you will be reunited with them. You will meet them one day again. But when you do, it's going to be a glorious reunion because you're going to have a perfect body and so will they. But you will be reunited forever with your loved ones. And number three, we see that they all will be with the Lord eternally. So when Jesus comes to claim His own, it's not a temporary thing. It's permanent. You get to be with Jesus forever. The curse of sin is gone. You have a perfect body. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And you get to be with Jesus in an unhindered fellowship. Well, do you welcome the thought of Christ's return? I hope you do. If that truth does not bring you hope, perhaps, my friend, it's because you are not a Christian. Listen closely. If you're not looking for Christ's return, 
If you don't love the thought of His return, could it possibly be because you don't know Jesus and He doesn't know you? So let me ask you, where does your faith lie? Is your faith in yourself? Or is it in something greater than yourself? I hope it's in Jesus. But so my friend, you need Christ. Why do we need Christ? Because He alone lived the perfect life that nobody else has ever lived. He lived the perfect life for you. And then Christ died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Paid the penalty of sin, which is death. Penalty of sin is death. He took the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. And then He arose from the grave conquering death, Satan, and sin. Which, of course, you and I could have never done all those things, but He did. And so now Christ is calling us to trust in Him, to give our lives to Him, because He bought them with a price. And if we trust in Him, He's going to give us a new life. New life. That's the only hope that we have, and it's a great hope, isn't it? But the text doesn't end here. Because we see in the text, particularly in chapter 5, we see that there is a doomsday coming. I know people make fun of doomsday. There's been movies made out of it. And there's been people who've, who've come up with dates, and those dates have never come true. And they've made fool of the, fools of themselves. Lots of people made fools of themselves by setting dates, saying that doomsday is coming on this date, and it doesn't. But the Bible says that doomsday is coming, that G- King Jesus is going to come again, and when He does, He's bringing His wrath and his punishment with him. First Thessalonians 5 talks about this, and it should concern us. Paul's going to deal with a horrible event that's going to take place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. There's been a series of judgments that, that are going to take place during the tribulation, but when it ends, all of King Jesus' enemies are going to be slain. We often call it the Battle of Armageddon, but it's not a battle. It's a slaughter. (laughs) It's not even a contest. They're going to show up against King Jesus, and He's going to wipe them all off the face of the earth. So my friends, we don't need to worry about this. In fact, Paul encourages us, because we're children of the light. We're not children of the darkness. This wrath is, is not meant for His children. So I want you to see what Paul says Here in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, you you believers, you Christians, you are not in darkness. In other words, this isn't for you. Brothers, this isn't for you. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober. My friends, the Thessalonian church wanted to know when this day of the Lord would take place. 
They wanted to know, if you will, when doomsday was coming. Why? Well, they were concerned that they had somehow missed the rapture. They had missed Jesus coming. Some of them were concerned that they were now in the day of the Lord. In verse 4, Paul reassured them that they were not going to experience the day of the Lord. This judgment day, if you will. He also told them that there was no need to write to them. Did you see that? There's no need to write to you there in verse 1. Why? Why is that? Well, they didn't need to know when. They already knew all that God intended them to know. And so to know when the day of the Lord would come could actually have a bad effect on them. Sometimes, you know, if people know a date, it can nurture indifference. And I, and I wonder if that's what God was thinking here. Because if they knew the exact date and the time, it could possibly nurture spiritual indifference if it were somehow still a long way off. And for some people, it could cause panic in their life. If they, if you, if you knew that, uh, for example, doomsday was coming tomorrow, do you think you might act a little differently when you go home? If you knew an actual doomsday was coming, you know, say a huge tsunami or, I don't know, an earthquake or something, you might act a little differently today than you're going to act. Sometimes it can cause panic. So being spiritually prepared for Christ's return doesn't involve date setting. It doesn't involve us going around looking for various signs. We don't need to do that. We know Christ is coming. We don't need to see any signs. God has not chosen to reveal the specific time so that all the believers then, we we can live in a constant anticipation of the end times. Are you doing that? That truth should motivate us should motivate us to at least evangelize those who don't know Jesus. Well, verse 6 gives a very serious warning here. The warning is this, that falling asleep is dangerous, right? Those of you who drive a car, you know, you, you don't want other people on the road falling asleep because if someone falls asleep and, and you're driving down the road, say they're coming the other direction, that that person could fall asleep and come into your lane and hit you. Dangerous. Falling asleep is a picture of what can happen to us spiritually speaking. could happen to us ethically, morally, if we're not watchful. The problem is we can just simply drift off like somebody driving a car. You ever, you ever done that? And you get sleepy and it's like, you know, the eyelids start closing. It's dangerous, isn't it? Drowsiness begins and we become comfortable and our hearts can become insensitive, spiritually speaking. Spiritual drowsiness is going to paralyze your spirit. The person who was at one time wide awake and following Jesus Christ can then become lethargic. You can become lazy. It's dangerous. As you're driving down the roads and your eyelids become heavy... Do you just ignore that? You start seeing those signs of drowsiness? It's, it's dangerous to ignore those signs. What do you do? Well, I, I hope you do something different. If you've, you know, your eyelids are closing, you're getting drowsy, you're not really paying attention. Some people might roll down their windows or push the button or whatever, you know, open your windows. 
turn on the radio really loud or, I don't know, uh, pull over for a rest or go to the petrol station and get a V or, you know, something. I need some energy here, right? Do something different. So spiritually, at the first sign of sleepiness, you got to make some corrections, don't you? And God's saying, if you're seeing these signs of spiritual laziness, sleepiness, drowsiness, make some changes in your life. Make some changes. Do something different. Don't, don't just keep doing the same thing. I mean, at the very least, ask God to do a work in your heart. Open your spirit to His work. Find somebody to make yourself accountable to. You say, hey, brother or sister, uh, I'm getting a little uh, sleepy here, spiritual. I, I, spiritually speaking, my eyes are starting to close. You know, would you help me out here? And ask God to change your heart. So falling asleep at the wheel can have some disastrous results, but so can falling asleep spiritually. So God's warning us here, don't fall asleep. We're to be alert, be awake. An alert person is someone who's aware. They know what's going on. They're sensitive to life around them. They're spiritually awake. And so I ask you the question, are you awake? Are you paying attention? Are you alert? Are you looking for God to work in your life? What is He doing around you? Or are you falling asleep? If you are, you can change. By God's grace, we can all change. It's only by His grace that any of us can change. Let's pray and, and ask God to do that in our own lives.